And that's what we believe. And having said that, let's turn in our scriptures to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as I told you, I am going to pick up the pace. Uh, this third sermon in the series entitled, Build His Church. Uh, that is the job of every Christian, to build the church of Christ. Right? We are saved in order to be a part of the church of Christ. Outside of salvation, you cannot be a part of the church of Christ. You could attend church, but you cannot be a part of the church unless you are in Christ. To be in Christ means you're a part of his church. And then, thus, you should be building his church. Uh, let me read to you chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. I preached to you from verse 1 and verse 2. Look at verses 3 through 11 this morning. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to, to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And there is our text this morning, and my job is to lay that out and explain that as best as I can as to what the significance of those words are to you as a follower of Jesus Christ. And this morning, in doing so, I want you to see the pleasure of truth. The pleasure of truth. We may very well nod our heads in agreement, externally, approving, oh, that is true. But we don't always agree in our hearts that something is true. Uh, at times, we may hear or read of something in the scriptures and say, well, it must be true, it's in the Bible. But then in our own hearts, we wonder as to whether or not it is plausible. We wonder as to whether or not this still holds today. Often we have our own ideas, ideas that we would rather embrace, our own ideas as to what is right, what is wrong, what is necessary, and what is not. We have our own ideas as to what I will accept as truth and what I will discard as being non-truth. And so our text here this morning is important because the success of your life and the success of the church of Jesus Christ is directly Related to how much of God's word impacts your life. The success of your life, thus the success of the church of Christ, of this body of believers, is very much so directly related to how much impact God's truth has in your own life. 
So take a look with me this morning at these verses. And I want you to see what is happening at the very early stages of the church already. The church of Jesus Christ is about 30 years old. It's still a fledgling church. This church here is older than the church was back then. And Timothy is given a challenge. Look at verse 3. The Apostle Paul urges Timothy to stay. Now, if you read in the book of Titus, Paul urges Titus to stay in Crete, and now he urges Timothy to stay in Ephesus. This concept of urging is important because Paul is urging because there's a compelling reason to leave. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have to urge him to stay. No, he has a reason that is pulling him outside of that church and say, Paul, rather, Timothy, go somewhere else. Go somewhere where you don't have these problems. Find another job. I know a good little church in such and such a place where everybody loves each other and you don't have these problems. They'll pay you well and you'll sleep better. Go over there, Tim. Now, Paul says, Timothy, I urge you, stay where you are. Have you ever had a job that you've dreaded? <laughs> yes, you have. Right? Some of you have. A job where you say, oh no, it's Monday already and Friday never comes. The hours are long. The people you work with are four. You just don't get along with them. You don't see eye to eye. There's that one guy you just, oh, I can't believe it. I have to work alongside of him. It's so difficult. I worked in a hospital for nearly 10 years, and what I learned over those 10 years is that I'm not cut out for hospital work. I do not recall a single day in that decade in which I said, wow, I'm so glad I'm here. I thank the Lord for the fact that I had a job, but boy, I did not enjoy it at all, watching people sick and dying and having to help do all kinds of procedures on people. I was not a brain surgeon, in case you wondered. I was the cleaner-upper guy. And boy, I said, Lord, I, I know this for sure. You've taught me some great lessons working here over these 10 years, but I don't want to be here. This is not for me. And how I thank the Lord that he agreed <laughs> and that I stand here instead. The story is told of a man who would not get out of bed on a Sunday morning, and his wife said, Honey, you're going to be late for church. You better get up. And he just turns around and goes back to sleep. So she goes back, honey, it's getting late. You're going to be late for church. You better get up. And he turns around again and he says, well, why should I get up? And she said, because you're the pastor. <laughs> Timothy was in a place where many pastors would have said, I don't want to go. These people are exasperating. This is overwhelming. This is more than what I could bear. Now remember, Timothy was young and rather timid. A frail person at that. And yet, Paul says, I urge you to stay. Now the problems that Timothy is facing in this time, in this era of the church life, were anticipated. In fact, Paul speaks of it in Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 29. You may want to look there. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is leaving Ephesus. And look at what he tells the pastors, the elders in Ephesus. He says, 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now the Apostle Paul is gone for maybe five years. Timothy's in charge. And the very things that Paul said, I know this is going to happen, do happen. And so he strongly encourages Timothy to stay because of the reality of these false teachers that have come into the church and they're teaching things that are simply not true. Now notice something here I find interesting about the Apostle Paul. He urges Timothy to stay. Paul could have said, I'm the Apostle and I'm telling you to stay. <laughs> no. Very gently, very calmly, very lovingly, he doesn't even exhort him. He urges him to stay. How humble on his part. Timothy, as his fellow worker, not his underling, but his fellow worker. In contrast, he tells Timothy, whereas I'm urging you, you need to charge, you need to command these false teachers to stop teaching things that are not true. Why? Because they are now an internal threat to the church to the well-being of the church. Uh, Pastor Alistair Begg, if you ever get a chance to listen to him, uh, and some of you I know do regularly, what a preacher he is. He, he notes that there's a great similarity between, between what we see here in, in the ancient church and what we see in our culture today. And he notes, quote, we have a culture that grants plausibility to anything and certainty to nothing. Everything is plausible, but nothing is actually true. Isn't that the culture we live in today? Anything goes, whatever you want to believe, well, that might be true. But listen, don't ever tell me something is true. And what we see today, and we're seeing the difficulty of living that way today, was happening back then as well. That's why we need to be grounded, anchored, to the word of God. Remove that anchoring and you will just wander. You will drift into truthlessness. Truthiness, but not truth. So Timothy here is urged to stay because this is, to quote from chapter 3, verse 15, this is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar and buttress of the truth. Have you ever been in one of these great cathedrals? And you see the buttress, you see the pillars that hold up these beautiful ceilings, these ornate ceilings. You remove that buttress and that whole building will collapse. That is what the church does for society. Certainly, that is what the church does for our souls, for us. We are the pillars and the buttress of truth. But it goes beyond our walls. We are actually benefiting mankind. 
society at large with the truth of the gospel. That's how important your job is as a Christian. Our job as a church. Now, certain people had come, and as we see here, verse 3, they began to teach different doctrine. And that word there, different, means strange, novel ideas, things other than the truth. In the process that I'm involved in, in helping to credential pastors within our denomination, I always remind, especially the young guys, we are not looking for anything new. We're not looking for anything novel. We're not looking for a new twist on a doctrine. We want to know the historical truth. Tell us that, you know. We have been around for 2,000 years now. There's nothing new. There's greater understanding, yes. I learn new things, but it's only because I'm behind the time. The truth has always been there. Now it's my job to discover it. We don't want anything new. We're not looking for anything novel. We want the biblical historical truth. And what was happening there in the early church is that they were teaching things that were different. Um, They were teaching from their own perspective. And, And in the case of the Gnostics, they were saying, we know things that nobody else knows. It's a mystery, and we have the answer. And if you hang out with me, go to my class, I'll reveal to you these these esoteric, supposedly intellectual ideas that nobody else knows. And and as a result, they were leading people astray. They were telling things to people that were simply not true, things that they had contrived in their own minds, things that that was based on their own interpretations instead of what the Bible actually says. And I find it interesting that we, we often get upset at people who are teaching things that are not true. And all you have to do is sit at home, I hope you don't, and, and run through the channels on a Sunday morning. How many TV preachers there are. And how many of them are not speaking the truth. And yet they have great audiences. False teachers are limited to the number of people willing to listen to them. Take away listeners and you will take away false teachers. But if you're willing to listen, they're more willing to teach and they will. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, many Christians get tired of the same old truths. And at times we we want beliefs that better reflect a novelty, a new idea. Or better yet, Beliefs that better reflect my own truth, what I want the Bible to say, or what I want to believe. Agree with me, and we're ready to go. And the Apostle Paul does address this. Look with me at 1 Timothy 6, beginning of verse 3. Jump over to chapter 6. In regards to these people who were teaching falsities, falsities, and of course, then of course, the people who were accepting them, abiding by them, embracing them. If anyone teaches, verse, verse 3, 1, 6, um, chapter rather, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, beginning of verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, he, that teacher, is puffed up with conceit and understanding understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. Why does Paul say that? Paul says this because truth does not change. Truth doesn't change. Our understanding of truth, yes, that is progressive, but truth remains perpetually the same. My friends, listen. Truth is not a social construct. Society does not determine what is true. Not in the past, not in the future, certainly not today. Truth is a constant. And truth is revealed to us by God himself. And he's revealed this truth through the written scriptures, the Holy Bible. Often, I find people are afraid of speaking the truth because, well, they don't want to offend others. I'm sure you've been there. You know what the truth is, but you're hesitant to say it because you don't want to be offensive. Uh, I recall a conversation with a Christian man who explained that he was more than willing to lie. He would, in fact, prefer to lie rather than to tell someone something they did not want to hear. And that's what he did. Unless, of course, lying would not be to his advantage. In other words, he would speak the truth if it was to his advantage to speak the truth. What a shame. What a shame. Well, take a look at verse 5. I realize I skipped verse 4. We're going to get back to verse 4. But first, let's take a look at verse 5. And there you see the reason for speaking the truth. The reason for speaking the truth. Here is the good reason for speaking the truth. This is the design or the telos of telling the truth. Love. Love. Verse 5 reads this way. The aim of our charge is our authority? No. The aim of our charge is to correct you? No. To discipline you? No. No. The aim of our charge is love. Love is the highest end of our faith. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from, that comes from, look, one, a pure heart, that is to say, love that comes from a heart that has no alternative or self-seeking intentions. I speak the truth with a pure heart. A love that comes from a good conscience. In other words, as I'm speaking the truth to you, I stand innocent. I am acting guiltlessly. And number three, a love that comes from a sincere faith. That is a true commitment to Christ. Speak the truth in love, meaning that you have a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. What we look to do here at Hope Church is to tell the truth, not in a self-centered way, not in a deceptive way, not in a hypocritical way. Because we know that if we speak the truth in the proper way, you will benefit. God will be adorned. Truth benefits you. Truthiness does not. My truth story will not benefit you at all. But real truth, the truth of God, even if it is hard truth, will benefit the people of God. The aim of telling people 
to stop teaching things that are not true, saying things that are not true, is love for you, love for God, and love for truth itself. Our truth, the truth that our society is formulating, everybody's speaking their own truth, their own truth story. Listen, it does not work long term. I wonder if it works short term, but certainly it does not work long term. In fact, it destroys. It destroys. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, Paramount Industries noted that it is ending the MTV News. And some of you are familiar with it. And as a result, they're going to slash its U.S. workforce by 25%. And according to this article, quote, it says, bringing to an end the iconic music video network's news division that once covered a range of issues from pop culture to politics and became a household name for Generation X and millennial adolescents. It's now gone. Where'd it go? Well, what they discovered is that the news was much too serious for a generation that was hooked on brief, entertaining TikTok videos. But there's a, even a greater problem. This, is, was, this was their approach to the news. They asked themselves this question. What's our way in here that feels true? Not what is true, but what feels true. And this is what we will report to you. Keep in mind, my friends, that whenever truth is determined by feelings, it is doomed to collapse. Truth based on your feelings is going to collapse. Objective truth, on the other hand, produces love. When it stems from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now, if your truth is not issuing from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith, your truth can actually be injurious. You can hurt people with the truth when your motivation is improper. Now, let's go back to verse 4 and to verse 6. And there, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, thus us as well, what wrong teaching produces. Whereas, right teaching produces love, if it's sourced properly... Here we see that wrong teaching produces, well, look at verse 4. Well, let's look at verse 3 first. First, Paul said, don't teach something different. Don't teach something that's novel or false. Verse 4, then he says, do not teach or do not devote yourselves to myths. Now, there were a series of Jewish religious books that could have been their source of these myths. But keep in mind uh, that this generation here is living in the world or in the age of mythology, whether Greek or Roman, there was no shortage of myths. Uh, and these, Paul says, are absolutely to be avoided, even if they are interesting. And they are, in an odd sort of way. These stories that try to explain reality, try to explain the world, I find them to be interesting. God here, we're told, tells us to avoid them completely. Certainly don't teach them. And then he goes on in verse 4, and do not teach these genealogies which are endless. In other words, they are exhausting. 
And we don't know what these genealogies uh, were, but what we, we see here that somehow they were being used to make their point, and yet they were saying nothing. And Paul says, get rid of these myths, get rid of these genealogies. Why? Because look, verse 4. All they do is promote speculation. They produce questions. They produce controversy. They do not produce God's work. They produce speculation. And instead, there again, verse 4, the church leadership was to steward or manage God's truth properly. A truth that's granted to us by faith. Not through genealogies, not through myths. Manage the truth of God properly. A, that's a word for me as a pastor, but a word for you as well, as a student of the Word of God, as a follower of Christ. Not only do bad or wrong teachings produce speculation, notice there, verse 6, it produces vain discussion. Vain discussion, that is, empty chatter, useless conversation. Uh, these people became word mongers, doing nothing but saying a lot, producing nothing but filling our ears with words. And again, look there, verse 6, number 3, it was causing them to wander from what is true. They began to wander from what is true. They ended up repudiating the truth and abandoning the truth and turning away from the truth. By the way, the Apostle Paul will refer to this again throughout his book in those three ways. Repudiating, ad abandoning, and turning away from the truth. And, and the irony here is that in seeking the truth, they abandon the truth. In looking for truth, because they refused to settle on God's truth, they actually wandered away from the truth. When they began to search for doctrine that was not actually of God, they land on things that simply don't matter. Verse 6 says, they wandered from the truth when they, when they swerved from these. When they swerved from what? When they swerved from a pure heart? When they swerved away from a good conscience, when they swerved away from a sincere faith, what happened? They wandered from the truth of God. There are three lessons for us to learn here. Three very simple lessons, but they are important lessons. Lessons that we seem to forget again and again and again. And if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Here's lesson number one. Speaking the truth without a pure heart, without a good conscience, without a sincere faith, is a dangerous endeavor. You will hurt others. Number two, teaching things that are not true is useless. And number three, following what is not true is devastating. Society today is shattered for these three reasons. Speaking the truth in an improper way, teaching things that are not true, it's useless, and following what is not true 
is devastating. Our society is really crumbling. I don't want to be a doomsayer, but we all watch the news. We all avoid New York City. Why? Because society is crumbling. And it's not just one brick at a time coming out of the walls. We're talking about uh, tons of bricks breaking down and collapsing. And we keep scratching our heads saying, what do we need to change? Why, why is this happening? We need more police officers. <laughs> we do. But that is not going to be the solution. Amen. We need God's truth. Amen. We need God's definitions. Have you noticed that when God's word is in play, society functions better? Even among those who don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, society functions better when God's word is in play, when God's word is being applied. Society is shattered because, because we are ignoring the truth of God. Well, let's take a look at the effects of false teaching. This is my last point this morning. The effects of false teaching. And that will take us through verses 7 to 11. Now, having been motivated by a desire to be teachers of the law, we see there verse 7. And yet they have no understanding of God's word or of God's law whatsoever. They do not understand the implications of what they're saying. They do not know what they're talking about, we're told. But they pretend that they absolutely do and even believe that they do. Well, look at verse 7. It says, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law of God is good. That is, it is upright. It is valuable. There's a great purpose in God's law. When it is used properly, when it is applied properly. Here Paul says, if the law is used correctly. That is to say that we could take the word of God and misuse it. In an effort to use it, we can very easily misuse it if we don't comprehend it properly. How do we comprehend it? By studying it. By prayerfully studying it. By being under the teaching of the Holy Spirit. By joining together on the Lord's Day to learn God's Word together. Misuse of the law of God is actually harmful, and yet it is the law of God. The law of God can be misapplied and it proves to be damaging when mismanaged. Uh, that is true of any good thing that God has created. Food is good, but it can be misused. Money, sex, alcohol, work, and even the law of God can be injurious if we misuse it. And notice here, verse 9, that the law is not designed to police good people, but rather it's designed to police bad people, lawless people. The law is designed to punish the bad, the immoral, and it's designed to protect the good and society. So there in verse 9, Paul gives us a list of the effects of wrong teaching. And you'll notice that he gives us three categories. 
three categories. Here are the effects of wrong teaching. First one is lawbreakers and disobedient. It is people who ignore God's rules and standards for life eventually become rebellious. Lawbreakers and disobedient. The second category is ungodly and sinners. Verse 9. They deliberately have no sense of the otherness of God. They are ungodly. And they sin. In fact, it is the outright result of deliberately having no sense of the otherness of God. You are going to sin. Ignore the greatness of God and you'll do as you please. You become your own God. And then the third category is unholy and profane. That is, they become indifferent to God and therefore they attack what is sacred, profane. Three categories of the effects of wrong teaching. And you do not have to look far to see all three in play. And then Paul, in my uh, estimation, rather surprisingly, gives some very specific examples of these three categories. And some people feel rather uneasy about it. You see, we could all say, oh yes, lawbreakers, ungodly, and holy, unholy people exist. But now as Paul gets specific, we look and say, oh, I think he's talking about me. I'm not too far from that. And notice these specifics. Right there at the very end of verse 9, and then all the way to verse 11, he gives these specific sins. And maybe you noticed, as you've been reading through 1 Timothy once again, I trust you are. Maybe you notice that he's actually taking these sins from the second table of the Decalogue, the second half of the Ten Commandments. And the first one he mentions is those people who, because they are lawbreakers, ungodly, and unholy, they strike their mothers and fathers. That's a violation of commandment number five. You shall honor your father and mother. And then he mentions murderers. That's law number six. Do not kill, do not murder. And then he mentions the sexually sexually immoral ones. That's a violation of law number seven. Do not commit adultery. And then he gets even more specific, and this is where a lot of people will push back, especially in our day and age, says he gives a, a, a very common and very specific prevalent form of sexual immorality, and he names it, he says, homosexuality. There are certain places that I would be arrested for hate speech, for having just read the scriptures. And yet Paul is very specific here. says people who who decide that they're going to teach what is speculation find themselves in vain discussion and they wander from the truth and they begin to say that homosexuality well love is love and that's just the way our culture is and we need to accept it and embrace it and understand understand that these people have the right to express themselves sexually in the way they do. And so today we have LGBTQI+. Did I forget T? I did. And T is probably the most difficult one of all at this point. 
But what frightens me is the plus. There's no end. There's no end. And by some estimations, we are now at about 25 different letters. Makes no sense. But it all comes down to this particular practice, a violation of law number seven of the Decalogue on sexual morality. I can say this, though, that both the Old Testament and the New Testament give a prohibition against such practice. I can also say this, that the scriptures here, Paul does not speak in anger and hate. He speaks in love. What is the charge? The charge is in love. He speaks with a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And one of the problems the church faces when it comes to this very issue is that we have spoken with so much vitriol, we have spoken with so much anger and hatred that our message is not accepted. And the people of love become all of a sudden the people of hate. And we justify it because we say, we hate sin because God hates sin. Therefore, I can hate you. What we see here in the scriptures is that this charge is given with the end of love. And so when we speak about whatever sin, including this particular sin, that involves the entire person, we are to speak with a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Because our goal is not to make them stop. Our goal is that they will know the love of Christ. And they will only know the love of Christ if you show it. If I show it. Love is the intent. Notice here that God does not say, do not murder in hate. He does not say, honor your mother and father in anger. No, the law is designed to edify and benefit one another out of love. And so when he says that homosexuality is a sin, he is not saying so in anger or hate. He is saying so with this goal in mind. I want you to know my love. There is a better way. And God says, I have that better way. But unfortunately, here, we tend to question God. We agree that we should not murder, that we should honor our fathers and mothers. We agree that we should not perjure or lie. We agree But when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, we wonder, God, are you really sure about this one? I question this one because I've met a lot of people who are in this lifestyle and they're really neat people. And they are. They're really loving people. I agree. And so, Lord, I'm going to question you on this one. I think you got the other ones right, but not this one. So you should consider re-evaluating your standards. And if you don't, I'll do it for you. Let me say this, beware that you do not suggest to God that you are wiser, kinder, or gentler than he is. When we take God's word and say, God, here you're wrong, you're not loving enough, we are saying we are more loving than you, God. That's a dangerous place to be. 
The list goes on. And it says, enslavers as well. That's a violation of law number eight in the Ten Commandments. You shall not steal. How's that? Well, enslavers are slave traders. Slave traders are kidnappers. Kidnapping is stealing. So you see, the Bible does speak against slavery. And finally, a violation of law number nine. Do not lie, do not perjure yourself. You see it there in the list as well. And then Paul closes this section out with verses 10 and 11. And by the way, if you've read ahead, the Apostle Paul says, I was worse than all of these. I was worse than all of these. And God forgave me. He can certainly forgive you. And then in verse 10 he reads, we read, and whatever else is contrary to sound, sound meaning healthy or better yet hygienic, that's where we get the word hygienic from, anything that is contrary to hy- hygienic doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Well, let me close this morning, my friends, with a, an illustration that comes directly from our headlines. In regards to the New York Republican freshman congressman, Brazilian-born George Santos. This past week, he was indicted on 13 federal charges, ranging from embezzlement to, be, to filing false unemployment forms and lying on legal reports. And he still refiled for re-election. Amazing, isn't it? Dr. Al Mohler is a formidable mind. He speaks every morning on his program. He's recorded it before I'm even up out of bed. And he describes George Santos as a moral parable. A moral parable for us. And that's because we are no longer on a quest for truth. Rather... We believe that we have the right to determine, we have the right to write what is true. We live in a postmodern age where truth is not revealed, truth is not discovered, rather truth is determined by the individual. It is now actually believed that all truth is a social construct, that is to say that truth is created by the norms of, of a society. And so Moeller notes Today, if you, do not, if you do not like your story of origin, you can change it. Today, if you do not like who you are, you can change it. Today, if you do not like your past, you can change it and become whoever you want to be. George Santos is the poster boy for postmodernism. Santos is an openly gay new politician who changed his ethnicity to Jew-ish. He's not Jewish, he's Jew-ish. He lied about graduating from various colleges. He made up stories about hobbies and sports achievements. He changed the story of his life and even his family life. And this is the product of truth being a social construct. 
culture adheres to the idea that truth can now be altered and truth could be whatever suits you best so that you can deny reality and reconstruct your own truth. And so Moeller says, Santos is playing the game in practice which elite philosophers played in theory. Eventually, it will move from theory and into practice. What's it looking like? You're not a New Yorker, but would you vote for him? A man who's rechanged everything? Created his own reality? We do know that truth is objective. That something remains true, even if I do not affirm it to be true. And let me remind you, Christian, that God is the source of truth. You can look for other truth, look high and low, but God is the source of truth. But let me remind you, you will find his truth not high and not low, you will find it in his word alone. He is the source of truth, and he has revealed his truth. And all you have to do is read this good book, and you will find his truth. And this truth will set you free. This truth will give you new life. This truth will transform you. This truth will even see you into eternity. Moeller notes, truth is not just a compliment we pay to ideas we like. Truth is vitally important. And to replace truth with what better suits our present demands or our feelings proves to be catastrophic. Congressman Santos is living proof of what I just said. So, again, the success of your life and the success of your church, they are directly related to how much impact God's truth has on you. You can't avoid it. Our Lord and Savior, how good it is to know that you are the revealer of truth and that we do not have to seek it out, but rather you have found us and you have given to us your truth. We pray, Lord, for hearts that would be receptive to your truth, minds that would be open to the reality of your truth, and Lord, the ability to embrace your truth and live by it and find life. In your name we pray, O Christ. Amen.